1596, just a handful of years before Johannes Kepler published his Three Laws of Planetary Motion, the English poet Sir John Davies wrote a poem entitled Orchestra, or a poem of dancing. Malcolm Guide explains that the poem, quote, tells the story of how Antinous, one of the suitors of Penelope in Ulysses' absence, woos her and asks her to dance. When she refuses, he launches into a great praise of dancing that forms the main body of the poem. Several verses offer a beautifully poetic vision of the creation of the universe, arranged as a kind of dance through the agency of divine love. Davies writes, quote, By his through-piercing and digesting power, the turning vault of heaven formed was, whose starry wheels he hath so made to pass, as that their movings do a music frame, and they themselves still dance unto the same. Or if this all round about we see, as idle Morpheus some sick brains have taught, of undivided motes compact be, how was this goodly architecture wrought? Or by what means were they together brought? They err that say they did occur by chance. Love made them meet in a well-ordered dance. Quote. And there is likely nothing more wondrous than the well-ordered dance of galaxies. What is a galaxy, though? What are they? The 18th century French comet hunter Charles Messier is credited with being the first to discover them, though at the time he had no idea what they were. In his hunt for comets, he encountered about a hundred or so clouds that, through his small telescope, at first looked like comets but did not move. These fuzzy cloud-like objects found their way onto a list of things for the avid comet hunter to avoid. What they have ironically since turned out to be is nothing short of remarkable. Dazzling star clusters, incredible nebulae, supernova remnants, and galaxies. The term galaxy comes from the Greek word milk, thus why our own galaxy is called the Milky Way. What we see in our night sky, if you're under a dark sky away from city lights, is but just one of several arms of gas, dust, and billions of stars. Many galaxies have several arms arranged in a spiral-like shape. And in the early part of the 20th century, there was a great debate as to whether or not these spiral-shaped clouds or nebulae were just clouds in our own galaxy or galaxies in their own right. J.M. Pasikoff and Alex Filipenko note that, quote, the distance and nature of the spiral nebulae was the subject of the well-publicized Shapley-Curtis debate held in 1920 between the astronomers Harlow Shapley and Herbert Curtis. Shapley argued that the Milky Way galaxy is larger than had been thought and could contain such spiral-shaped clouds of gas. Curtis, in contrast, believed that they are separate entities, far beyond the outskirts of our galaxy. This famous debate is an interesting example of the scientific process at work. In 1923, the debate was finally settled. Edwin Hubble discovered our nearest galactic neighbor, Andromeda, to be more than just a cloud in our galaxy. It was a galaxy by itself, some 110,000 light years across. And over the next two years afterward, Hubble came up with a classification system of galaxies gathered from his observations at Mount Wilson. 
he created five basic categories, each of them having relative variations within them. Elliptical, lenticular, spiral, barred spiral, and irregular. Ellipticals are essentially a spherically shaped ball of stars with little defining gas and dust. Lenticular galaxies feature some characteristics of spiral and elliptical galaxies, while spiral galaxies have several distinct arms that sweep outward from a luminous center. Barred spirals retain the sweeping arms of regular spirals, but instead of arms emanating from a dense core center, they flow outward by a bar that traverses the center of the galaxy, thus the name barred. And then there are the irregulars, which are an oddly glorious assortment of all kinds of shapes and sizes, including interactions with other neighboring galaxies. It is truly a marvel of our time that for most of our human existence in the cosmos, we have been completely unaware of these glorious swirling diadems of wonder and awe. It has only been in the last century that we've known of their immensity and distance from us. Our understanding of their wondrously enigmatic nature is still in its infancy. A Forbes article from August of 2019, for example, illustrates this rather clearly. The article reports that there are presently only 19 known galaxies astronomers use for statistical analysis in relation to measuring distances throughout the universe. No one knows with any certainty how many galaxies there are in the universe, but estimates range into the hundreds of billions. But are 19 galaxies out of hundreds of billions an accurate population sample? As the article states in a caption underneath the photomontage of the 19 galaxies, quote, that's a very small number, statistically, to draw conclusions about the entire universe, end quote. It is not entirely clear who first discovered Andromeda, as it is visible as a bright smudge to the naked eye under dark skies. The first recorded report of it comes from the 10th century Persian astronomer Abd al-Rahman al-Sufi in his work The Book of Fixed Stars. Charles Messier cataloged Andromeda as M31 in 1764, and the first photographs of Andromeda appeared in 1887, taken by Isaac Roberts. It wasn't until Hubble's discovery in October of 1923 that we knew Andromeda to be a galaxy, and that the universe was filled with a countless multitude of them. But what is the purpose in studying galaxies, or the cosmos itself? Why do we want to know more about it? What is it saying to us? What draws our money, time, and attention skyward so regularly? What is it that is really going on above us? Modern secular science offers answers about meaning and self-discovery, but end up usually describing it all in purely naturalistic terms. A variegated array of gas, dust, matter, and energy, and nothing more. But is that all there is in the contemporary quest to know the universe, gas, and dust? 17th century English poet George Herbert begins his poem Vanity by describing the adroit observational acuity of the astronomer. And for context, Vanity appears in a volume of his work published in 1633, just a few decades after Kepler published his Three Laws of Planetary Motion, and just a few decades after Galileo's discovery of Jupiter's moons. Herbert writes, quote, The fleet astronomer can bore and thread the spheres with his quick piercing mind. He views their stations, walks from door to door, surveys as if he had designed to make a purchase there. He sees their dances and knoweth long before both their full-eyed aspects and secret glances, End quote. As Herbert poetically asks in the last stanza, for what exactly is the astronomer looking? What is the point of searching among the stars? Does the astronomer desire to, quote, make a purchase, end quote? He sees their dances and knows their secret glances. But what is the chief end of all his searching? Herbert asks, quote, 
What hath man sought out and not found but his dear God, who yet his glorious law embosoms in us, mellowing the ground with showers and frosts, with love and awe, so that we need not say, where's this command? Poor man, thou searchest round to find out death, but missest life at hand. End quote. But of course, as Christians, the scriptures point us to the life at hand, as the psalmist proclaims in Psalm 148, quote, Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord from the heavens. Praise him in the heights. Praise him, all his angels. Praise him, all his hosts. Praise him, sun and moon. Praise him, all you shining stars. End quote. Scripture also declares, And they who dwell in the ends of the earth stand in awe of thy signs. Thou dost make the dawn and the sunset shout for joy. God commands the stars to praise him, and they do, in galaxies and clusters upon clusters of galaxies. The pure milk of his word enables us to understand the ways in which we walk, the paths we take. And we know by faith that the universe, the worlds, were created by the word of God. And who is this Jesus, that even the stars in the heavens obey him? And who are we, that God is mindful of us, when we consider the heavens, the question is ever-present in our minds. On this episode of Good Heavens, Wayne and I begin to explore the wonderful world of galaxies and how we think they point us to the glory of God. So come along and listen to our informal conversation about the nature of these grand and enigmatic celestial sentinels. Good heavens, we are back. It is August, an August podcast. My goodness, we've been at this for almost two years. Yes. Uh, hi, Dan. It's good to be back. And uh, Texas is hot, and we're going to keep going with good heavens. Texas is hot. It was 100 degrees. It's been 100 degrees the last couple of days. Our yeah. our parent star makes it a little uncomfortable here, down here in, in Texas sometimes. But uh, we get used to it. <laughs> yeah, but if you can get through the summers in Texas, the rest of the year is pretty nice. It is. It is. It is really nice. Well, we are gathered together here at our favorite coffee shop in South Lake, Texas. Buongiorno. Buongiorno. So if you're ever in South Lake, Texas, or Fort Worth, Texas, or Grapevine, Texas, where they have three locations, uh, stop by for an excellent cup of coffee or a smoothie. Ah. They're not paying me for this. I just love coming here. Well, we should go to some of the other locations. Yeah, we could do Fort Worth one of these days. But uh, if you're in Texas in the DFW area, visit Buongiorno. For great coffee and smoothies, and uh, they're they're a delightful little cafe too. They're really yeah. laid out, really nice, and uh-huh. they're not paying us to do this. They've just been so nice for letting us have podcasts, and they're they're, they're putting up with us. They are putting up with us. So thank you for that. Uh, well, we are here not to chat about coffee as much as I could probably do a whole episode on coffee. <laughs> <laughs> we are here to talk about galaxies, Wayne. There's a lot of people. I didn't really realize this until I started talking more about the book and astronomy with people. There's a lot of people that don't even know what a galaxy is. Yeah, galaxies are very big and, and they're amazing things God created. And I say that because even astronomers struggle to sort of understand exactly what a galaxy is. 
and it, yes. it's remarkable to me, and we just talked about this before we turned on the microphone, uh, it is remarkable that we haven't known about galaxies. We've only known about galaxies for 100 years in, in a formal sense and how big they are and, and, and that the universe is filled with them. We didn't know they existed for most of our human existence. Right. Nobody had any idea that galaxies existed. That's right. Like if you go back to the time of Tycho Brahe and Johann Kepler, Dan, like the early 1600s, uh-huh. they had no idea of there being anything like galaxies. No, it's remarkable. Of course, remarkable. everything that Kepler did was without a telescope. Right. So Galileo invents the telescope in 1609. He starts using that. The telescopes had to advance and improve for years and years uh-huh. before they could even figure out galaxies. Right. We had the Galileo is credited with the first use of the telescope, training it on the heavens, but that was 1609, early early 17th century. Yeah. That, that he was a contemporary of Kepler's. Right. Um, but but this whole idea of a galaxy. Let's let's start before we launch into it. Let's start and basically just define uh, what we mean when we're talking about. A galaxy. Well, first of all, the word galaxy uh, comes from a Greek word, gallic. I think it's gallic. I'm not sure if I'm pronouncing it correctly. That means milk. That's where it comes from. So our galaxy, when you look up at the night sky, if you're under a dark sky area, and you see what looks like a streak of clouds that just kind of pierce through the middle of the sky, uh, depending on where you are, uh, people call that the Milky Way because the gas and the dust and the light along that lane look very milky. Yeah, and so the word kind of stuck, and we use the Greek word "gallic" for milk uh, to describe these galaxies. So that's the etymological understanding of, of yes. galaxies. And, and and for a long time, even after the invention of the telescopes, they called galaxies spiral nebulae. Yeah, clouds, spiral they, they clouds. They thought they were clouds because uh-huh. they looked fuzzy in the telescope. Right, and and so. These things are enormous. Right. Uh, our uh, our nearest neighbor, which we'll talk about here in a minute, the closest galaxy to us is two and a half million light years away. A light year, one light year, is six trillion miles, more mm-hmm. or less. So mm-hmm. six trillion times two point five million. You do the math. Uh, that's that's the galaxy that is nearest to us, right. and according to astronomers, it's moving toward us. But these, you can think of a galaxy as an island. Universe. That's what Immanuel Kant called them in 1755 before. He was imagining these things called island universes. Of course, in the mid-1800s, in the the mid-18th century, they didn't know what they were. But but that's what a galaxy is. It's sort of an island of light and gas and dust kind of swirling around a a very dense core center. Yeah, so I think it's important to say uh, in a galaxy you have many, many stars... That are orbiting the center. Yes. And it's not one object they're or- orbiting per se. It's it's a collection of many stars. Yeah. The, there's a vi- there, there is often black holes at the center of galaxies. Uh huh. But it's the stars are orbiting uh, similar to planets in our solar system orbiting the sun, but. Stars are not orbiting one object. They're right. orbiting a collection. Well, and if you, look, if you think of you just got a latte at a coffee shop, you stick your spoon in the center, uh-huh. and you start stirring, right. the white foam starts to spin into a, like a spiral shape. That's right. But what's the center? What's causing all of this is the, the spoon, the stirring motion of the spoon is causing the swirl, but in a galaxy. So that's a, basically a visual of a galaxy. But with a galaxy... The thing that's doing the stirring 
is a super massive, dense uh, thing that they call, as you say, a black hole that just sort of absorbs light. It's super massive, and it's sort of the axial spin on which, around which all the stuns rotate. Yeah, and there's, there's spiral galaxies have a big bulge in the center. Right. And uh, some galaxies don't really have a bulge with a flat disc. They're, they're more like a, a football, maybe, or something. Or they're called elliptical galaxies. And they're they're not really a flat shape. They're more of a um, stretched out ball kind of. Yeah, shape. we'll get into the uh, categories in just a minute. Um, but so basically, just to review, the galaxies are swirling, massive collections of anywhere from a hundred billion to two hundred billion stars. Yeah. So Dan, even in just in recent years. They revised upward their estimate of the number of stars in our galaxy. They, for years, they used to say it was 100 billion stars, and now they would say 200 to 400 billion. Yeah, it's, in and our it's own not galaxy. like, and it's not like anybody has actually, you know, taken a star census. Right. The, these stars are, um, they're just an estimate. But yeah, every galaxy contains something like 100 billion to 200 billion to 300 billion stars. It just depends. Yeah. And they're all in motion around this dense center core called a black hole. So uh, we're going to get into this episode uh, basically talking about galaxies, how we came to know them, what they are, and how they point to, most importantly, how they point to the glory of God. So Wayne, let's talk a little bit first before we launch into the to the background. Let's talk a little bit about some uh, scripture. What uh, you have some verses, and I have some verses we wanted to read. Yeah, there was a neat verse in Isaiah. This is Isaiah forty-five, verse twelve. God is speaking here. He says, "It is I who made the earth and created mankind on it. My own hand stretched out the heavens. I marshaled their starry hosts." That's one of my favorites. I like that. I also have a couple of verses from Isaiah. One is from Isaiah 40, verse 12. Mm -hmm. And Isaiah asks the questions, or God asks the questions through the prophet. He says, Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand and marked off the heavens by the span? Oh, that's a wonderful one. So so God has... has These these things that we'll be talking about were created by God. And... um, one of my other favorite verses is Isaiah forty twenty six, the same chapter, where the prophet, God through the prophet says, Lift up your eyes on high and see who has created these stars. <laughs> the one who leads forth their host by number, he calls them all by name. Because of the greatness of his might and the strength of his power, not one of them is missing. And on the way into South Lake this morning, I was driving, of course, heading east from where I am, and I was able to see the sunrise. It was beautiful. And I love to see this huge orange disc on the eastern horizon rising up. It was just making me think about, there's this brilliant bright light that's 93 million miles away from it. It's just one star. Uh And you could fit a million Earths inside yes. this one star. If it was a gumball machine, Earth right. would, there would be a million Earth gumballs inside of it. Yes. And going yeah. across its equator, you could string 109 Earths. And, and it, it's just amazing. Yeah. And that's just one star. And then we're talking about galaxies that are filled with 
hundreds of billions of these things. Yes. It's incredible. Right. It is. Okay, so you have another verse from Proverbs, right? Yeah, this is interesting. Uh, Proverbs 25, 2 says, It is the glory of God to conceal a matter. To search out a matter is the glory of kings. Okay, so how do you see that related to what we're talking about today? So science searches out everything about the universe, Dan. And sometimes I wonder if God is sitting up in heaven uh, kind of laughing at our understanding of the universe and thinking, <laughs> they really don't get it yet. Uh, if only they really knew If they really knew. It was Wait like, and see what they come up with next. Right, oh, right. Yeah. It's like uh, the uh, disciples on the Emmaus Road. They're actually walking with Jesus, and, and their eyes were prevented from seeing him. That's right. And I think a lot of times in our culture and society, our eyes... Well, for most of our existence, our eyes have been prevented from seeing these galaxies. And now, how delightful it is that science... I mean, you spend billions of dollars, Wayne. You know this. The, 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 the amount of the annual expenditure uh, in Europe and in, in the United States and, and other agencies uh, for investigating galaxies, the, the, the amount of money you spend by itself should say something about what you're studying. They're so wonderful. They're so enigmatic. They're so beautiful. Right. They are glorious. It's like we're looking at the treasure trove of a king, and we kind of are. <laughs> yeah, Dan, I love science and astronomy, and uh, I, I invested a lot of my own resources into getting a master's degree in physics. But um, uh, we, we have to learn to... Uh, not get too uh, impressed with ourselves and our own understanding. You know, in science, I think there is a, science tends to be long on analysis and short on humility. Yes, and, 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 and astronomy should be uh, a very humbling thing. Right. It it, it 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 cultivates humility. I mean, we talk about stuff. I mean, half the time I'm I'm sitting here talking to stuff with you. I mean, my I, my knowledge of my scientific knowledge of the universe is is that of an infant. But I love talking about it, yeah. and I think scientific theories are cool and, and wonderful to explore. And uh, we might disagree with some of the conclusions that, that science comes to, but, but, I, but I applaud the scientific endeavor because it requires a combination of reason, imagination, and, as you say, humility. Good scientists have a combination of all three. They, they tell a good story. They can translate their data. They're humble about it, and, and, and it's fun to hear these really smart people say, I don't know, sometimes. <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah. Um, so let's, uh, let's go back to a time um, before we knew anything about galaxies. Uh, you want to start with uh, Kepler and Bra a little bit, and uh, we'll go from there. We'll talk about the history of how galaxies have unfolded because it as we said it's just been in the last hundred years since 1923 actually it's not even been a hundred years that we have really known become uh, aware of the true nature of what galaxies are so let's go back to uh the 16th century shall we yeah so like kepler well of course kepler figured out three laws of orbital motion that, that, that is, was used to explain our solar system right yes well those laws of motion can apply in, uh, to other objects in space, but like the motion of stars in the galaxies are somewhat different, but it's still uh, the same kind of orbits at, at times, but it's a little different because a galaxy is a collection of many, many objects. And um, um, so Kepler and Bra had a way of showing that the, 
the universe is not as simple as people had thought. It was believed that everything beyond the moon was static. Everything stayed the same. Right, nothing changed. It was changed. sort of perfect and never changed. Right, God was immutable. He created everything beautiful and perfect. So above the moon was perfect. It was like a, a pristine jewelry store. Nothing changed. Everything was everything was wonderful in its place and perfect. But uh, today, Dan, yeah. scientists model galaxy collisions. Yes, they put a, they put it all in a computer and they model how. What happens if three or four galaxies collide? What do they do to each other? Aren't you glad they can't test that in real life? You know? Yeah, as long as we're not in the middle of it. Yeah, right. So uh, it's fascinating what they're what they're able to do. And today, Dan, the technology of astronomy has advanced so much that really amazing things that they're able to do now. I was reading just very recently there was news from uh, a satellite that comes from it's. Actually, uh, comes from a Spanish team uh, through the European Space Agency. The satellite is called Gaia, and Gaia is is an astrometry satellite. So, okay. astrometry is about measuring the positions of velocities, um, motions of stars, uh, motions of stars, and brightness, and and doing it accurately. So what they did was they looked at this to, the, around the center of our galaxy, and they actually found direct observational evidence that our galaxy, the Milky Way, is a barred spiral galaxy. Okay, so they that- they got they had to put together a lot of different data, both from the ground and from the satellite, and they actually found evidence of the bar. It's a it's like a strip of galaxies in a straight line that goes right through the center of the galaxy. So this would be a good time. We'll get back to Kepler in just a second. This will be a good time to talk about basically the uh, the kinds of shapes of galaxies that there are. So right. we can we can talk about there's there's the elliptical. Mm-hmm. Uh, there are spiral galaxies, mm-hmm. and there are barred spiral galaxies. Right. That's those are. I mean, there and then there are subdivisions within those categories, and then there's a small category called the lenticular galaxies. Lenticular galaxies are sort of a combination of ellipses and spirals, but um, Edwin Hubble classified, made a classification of galaxies. So, as you said earlier, ellipticals are like a round, sort of a glowing orb, a football shape. Right, and some of, there's also what they call dwarf galaxies. Yes. And there's also some called ultra-compact Ultra compact uh, object. The UCD is what the, I forget what the D stands and for. And then there's a wonderful uh, sort of. Uh, uh, catch-all category of irregular Irregular, gal- <laughs> yeah. There's some of the most beautiful and interesting yes, ones. Yes. The, 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 the spirals are sort of the, the, the run-of-the-mill, you know, urban development. But the irregulars are just, they're so fascinating. There's, oh, yeah. There's, there's tons of irregulars out there. Yes. But, and you can you can tell by the categorical name that they have no distinct shape. <laughs> right. They look Dan, like tadpoles or flowers or all kinds of antelopes or there zebras. Was, there or, was one that uh, I was watching a YouTube video, and it showed one that was, uh, it looked like uh, a penguin standing over looking at its egg. <laughs> so the, it was two galaxies. Yes. One of them was a spiral galaxy that had the shape distorted mm-hmm. by the other galaxy. And the other one was an elliptical galaxy. And it looked like a penguin in the egg. It was yeah. sort of weird. One of my, one of my favorites is the uh, M51, Messier Object 51, <laughs> which is a, the Whirlpool galaxy. Yeah. But it looks like uh, a parent and a child galaxy because the Whirlpool galaxy, one of its arms 
reaches out to the small little dwarf galaxy, and it's like Dad's Patton Jr. on the head. Yes. It's, really, it's, it's a beautiful sight. But but you get these you get these wonderful distinct impressions as though there was an artist painting a canvas of real life. You know. Yes, in uh, fact, I think it's very important to not not forget this. You know, to, we shouldn't get so caught up in the scientific questions that we. We can't appreciate the beauty of this. That's right, Wayne. I think that's one thing that I, I, I was just talking to Paul uh, Gould recently, and uh, we talked about this. You need time and space to contemplate the wonder and the beauty and without reducing, just, without reducing things to mathematics. There's nothing wrong with science and math, right. nothing wrong at all. Right. But, but, but there are two different things going on here. There's, there's the beauty that requires time and effort to contemplate. And so we have to be deliberately... Uh, about remembering how to contemplate and like we're doing, having fun looking at these things. Yeah, it, and you know, Dan, I believe God created everything in the universe, and there are galaxies that are very, very orderly. The elliptical galaxies are pretty orderly. The, some of them are almost perfect spheres, but uh, some of them are these barred spirals, like our galaxy, and we have pictures of barred spirals. And I've, I've always thought they're amazing because that bar in the middle, how did the bar get there? Right, and, and that we should say that, that the, like with spirals, the centerpiece, the arms come out of the center. But in a barred spiral, the arms come out of the bar. The end of the bar. Yeah, it's, yeah. A, it's, a, it's a literally like a light bar. Uh-huh. And at the end of each of the bars, that's where the arms come from. Right. And uh, so if you look up, if you Google barred spiral galaxies, they're some of the most fascinating looking things you'll see in the universe. Yes. So there's order God created in all this. But there's also galaxies that that are just plain weird and uh, there was a the guy in the video I was watching. He had this wonderful statement that I liked. He said, um, "These irregular galaxies, um, they laugh in the face of order." <laughs> well, it, with all so of, this is this is two sides of God, and you might right. God is God is, does order, but he also does some a little chaos now and then. He does, he does, he does. <clears throat> There's a uh, wonderful collection. You've had this book. We've I've shared this book with you before. Yeah, you're talking about the book about a Halton Arp. Halton Arp. Let me talk about Halton Arp a little. Yeah, Halton Arp. Was, uh, was an astronomer back in the 60s and 70s, I think, mainly. And uh, he was kind of a maverick astronomer, and he pointed out a lot of interesting uh, things about galaxies. So he was trying to point out things that were problems with the Big Bang because he, he pointed out that the red shifts were kind of in disagreement between objects that he thought were connected and close to each other. Right. And uh, now his his photographs come from a long time ago now, and it's very, those are very old images today. Right. So I don't, I think a lot of Arp's conclusions were wrong, and today we have better images for over a lot of that. But he sure, he really shook things up in astronomy a lot. Yeah, absolutely. And, and that was good for astronomy. Yeah. We, we need we need astronomers that will not go along with all the standard ideas and will look at things other ways. So yeah, you were you're mentioning ARP and in this book that I have, uh, it's it's called the ARP Atlas of Peculiar Galaxies. It sounds right. like a something Charles Dickens might have written. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, but in the in the uh, introduction, I love there's a there's a the opening introduction is wonderful. 
and I, 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 this it tests to exactly what you're saying. It, 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 gets, it says, uh, in 1966, Halton Chip Arp published his Extraordinary Atlas of Peculiar Galaxies, which is a, comp- a compilation of 338 of the most bizarrely shaped galaxies and galaxy associations that had been photographed with a large telescope. Few of the galaxies in Arp's atlas correspond to the symmetrical forms specified in the Hubble sequence of spirals and ellipticals that we've been talking about. So, in other words, he's compiled a collection of photographs of really strange, inexplicable uh, galaxies are, that are unable to be classified, that, that they have a personality of their own, no distinct categories. And, and so it just goes to show you, as you exactly said, we cannot rule out uh, observations that don't fit our expectations. Right. That's the so most important thing. Many of those uh, weird cases are, are things that scientists uh, assume today that they were galaxies that collided. And uh, that's a possibility, but I think we have to remember that we're not sure how things were in the beginning. So we see them today, and there's a lot of interpretation that has to go into uh, how do you understand this picture of this galaxy. And so, so, for example, there might be two galaxies that are relatively near each other, and there'd be some kind of stream of gas and material that goes between them. So one way to look at that might be to say they pass through each other and now there's this stream that's kind of a remnant of, of the collision or something. And then, but another possibility could be that one galaxy ejected matter after it was formed. Or uh, there's also things like supernova explosions or things that black holes do. Black holes can give off uh, beams of energy that are like a, like a laser beam is what you look at if, if they get a photograph of it. So there's other things that can change the galaxies, that can distort each other's shape, and there's a lot of po- complicated things that are possible in, in these situations. So let's get back to uh, your uh, story about Kepler and Bra. Yeah. So they, they so the important contribution to Kepler still stands. It's amazing. He discovered the three laws of planetary motion, or discovered or published uh, the three laws of planetary motion in 1609. They were mm-hmm. finally all completed, published in 1609. But that, that, that is still standard fare in astronomy, and that helped us to better understand the motions of other things, right? As you said, it's earlier. Right. It's, so, so what is, uh, in your estimation, what is, how is Kepler... And bra, how how do they factor into what we're talking about here with galaxies now? Well, that brings up a topic that uh, is kind of controversial. It's the subject of dark matter. Dark matter is an important topic in understanding galaxies because often today scientists believe that there's a lot of unseen matter in a galaxy. So if you look at planets in our solar system like Kepler did in in studying the orbits, as you go to a planet that is farther and farther from the sun, its velocity along its orbit decreases. So Earth is moving faster, a lot faster than Jupiter in its orbit. And uh, that's a very predictable thing. Kepler worked out the mathematics of how that works. If you try to 
uh, analyze the orbits and the speed of the stars in a galaxy, it doesn't quite follow the same thing. It's a little bit off. So what happens is in a galaxy, as you go farther and farther from the center of the galaxy, the, the velocity of the stars in their orbits is kind of constant or close to being constant. Okay, so Until let me... you get out to a certain distance, and after a certain distance, then the stars start to be moving faster instead of slower. Okay, so this, the analogy that I've heard, or I've made up for myself, just to kind of go back to what you're saying here. So if something's closer to the, the, the as you say, the inner planets move around our sun faster, mm-hmm. the outer planets move around our sun a lot slower because they're sweeping out. Uh, uh, the, the farther out they go, the slower they go. The, sl- the longer it takes to go around the sun. Yeah, it's, uh, they don't have to go as fast to stay in orbit. Yes, but when we come to stars in the galaxies... The stars on the edge of the galaxies are moving faster than they, quote, should be. Yes. And so what I liken it to is if you, if you took a tire off of a bicycle and put it on its side, right, and then, and then around the rim of the bicycle you add Skittles or M&Ms. What happens? What would happen if you spun the tire on its side? What would happen the, to the M- The Skittles would fly they off. They would fly off. And so what we're dealing with here is a mystery of a spinning bike tire Somebody put the Skittles on the outside of the bike tire, but they're sticking to the tire. Now, what would you say if you saw Skittles on the outside of a bike tire sticking to the bike tire as the bike tire was spinning? You would say that there was some... Somebody glued them. Somebody glued them there. Yes. But you stopped the tire, <laughs> and there's no glue there. But, but what you're postulating yeah. is, is a matter that you can't see. That's you're, right. You're just going by, well, there must be something there. I can't see the glue, but it's there. But it's there because these are sticking here. But so that's, that's what a, That is very like the idea of dark matter. That, yeah. that, that's what dark matter is. It's kind of like astrocosmic glue that, 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 that saying, well, these stars should be flying off into space, but they're not. What is holding them together? I think it was Vera Rubin in the 1960s who came up with this concept, who, who measured the velocity, the radial velocity of stars, and realized what you just said. Right. They're off. They shouldn't yes. be moving that quickly. Yes. So, so here comes dark matter as a sort of placeholder glue for stars and galaxies, correct? Right. So, but there's one big problem with dark matter. We can't identify what it is. The particle physicists have proposed various exotic particles that they think uh, dark matter could be. Like one of them was called machos, Dan. Yeah, and there's machos and wimps. Wimps. Uh, <laughs> wimp stands for... Uh, weak interacting w- particle. Weak interacting massive particle. Massive particles, right. And so the idea of dark matter is not the normal matter we normally are familiar with, and it rarely interacts with light or other matter. It sounds like a creature from Lord of the Rings or something. You know, yeah. wimps and, 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 and things like this. Right, so... But the problem is um, the physicists, the particle physicists who try to find evidence of these dark matter particles, they can't find a working theory so far. So no one has been able to identify something that we can really detect that really would be like dark matter. And it's interesting, you know, we've joked, you know, in communicating through emails that, uh, you know, it's invisible, can't see it. Must be matter, right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Invisible. It's interesting because the assumption in the term, look at the assumption in the term, dark matter. It right. must be something uh-huh. holding this together. But yet, as you've said, there have been no detectors, nothing detected uh, what this particle thing uh, could be. What is this glue? We can't see it. We can't test it. We have no... Ob- it doesn't emit light. It doesn't, it doesn't interact. Right. So... 
it's Dan, the idea of dark matter is assumed in many computer simulations that scientists do. It's, it's assumed when they study galaxies. It's assumed in, in uh, things about the Big Bang and the expansion of the universe. So there's, it's assumed almost all the time in cosmology work and galaxy studies and in spite of the fact that we can't identify this stuff. So is the current science suggesting that there is the current science suggesting that there is actually something there? Or do you think maybe this is a matter of our models being a little off? I'm not willing to believe in it when we can't identify what it is. Okay. When we can't say, here's a detection of a particle that could be dark matter. But we do see an effect of something. We do see, like you said, we have observed the rotational velocity of stars and galaxies is sure. off. Yeah, so I think Something's that, wrong. I think that... There's something different about the mechanics of a galaxy because if you get beyond a certain distance, the center, the, the gravitational pull to, to, of the center no longer becomes the, the, uh, the only force that matters. You have a lot of stars around the, others, around the star that's on the edge, and the stars are affecting each other in a way that we don't understand. Yeah, we're just... So they're sort of speeding each other up. But what would happen is from the science we really know if you don't if you don't believe dark matter the galaxy would have an, a sort of outer edge that would come apart it would separate from the rest of the galaxy and then beyond behind inside that distance the other thing that would happen to these spiral galaxies is the arms would wrap up mm. the arms the galaxy spinning and as the galaxy spins over time, the, the spiral arms would wrap up and it would look more like an elliptical galaxy. Okay. But that doesn't seem to be, that doesn't seem to have happened. Yeah. So, so it raises the question, are these galaxies really billions of years old? Okay. I think they could be younger than this. All right. I think the, the interesting thing for me with galaxies uh, is... That despite our advanced technology, our ability to, to measure them, the velocities maybe take their mass, look at their lights, and, and all that kind of stuff, we still know very little about what these are, especially with the irregular uh, category of galaxies. That, that is shedding a lot more light on how we know galaxies because there's not a sort of a one-size-fits-all theory about where they come from. It's hard to fit all the unique shapes of galaxies into one coherent theory that involves dark, whether it involves dark matter or not. It's, it's hard to conceptualize how galaxies came into being, how they continue to, to exist with all their stability, how they're moving, their motion. There's a lot of, for everything that we know, there's a lot. Wayne, that we absolutely just we just we just don't know. We're just beginning to yeah, understand. There are, there are many puzzles. So, for example, <clears throat> there may be two galaxies that are close to each other, and scientists will assume, assume that they pass through each other because the galaxies are do have a lot of empty space. Then they could pass right through each other. Well, but one of them is very distorted, but the other one isn't. So why they, would one be distorted and not the other? Right. That's always been a, a curious thing for me. When you, Newton's laws still apply to galaxies. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> right. So this is a mystery. There's a lot of things like that. But I think that we need to 
consider there's other ways of looking at things. Absolutely. I tend to look at these galaxies that look like they were colliding. I would say they were probably just created this way, and it's really more of an artistic thing. I would agree. This is God's artwork. Yeah. Uh, And it really is great artwork. And you you, uh, showed there's a picture on the cover of the art book that you have. Uh, It's ARP Galaxy, I think it was 473? Uh, well, I don't remember the number. number. It's called the Antenna Galaxy. The Antenna Galaxy, and it, we, you and I were sitting here talking about what it looks like, and it looks like, why don't you describe, I like the way you describe it. <laughs> yeah, it looks like a, a bent tadpole with lights on it. So how did, you, you, you know, <laughs> the way it's curved, though, as you said, we could envision an artist with a brush sort of going over the canvas. That's right. With, with a, a paint, uh, you know, the, the, the medium of light with a brush, you know, just, just weaving it over the campus. And there's, there's a, one of my favorite ARP galaxies. I think it's 273. It looks like a rose. And mm-hmm. astronomers have called it a pair of interacting galaxies. But the top galaxy looks like a rose petal, the top of a rose petal. Yeah. And the bottom galaxy is a long, thin, irregularly shaped galaxy that looks like the stem of a, a rose, and, and the astronomers have said, you know, I, that they are interacting. Now, did one pass through another? How are they interacting? Uh, yeah, and it, some it lo- of them look like a ring, like they lost the center. Yeah, exactly. Uh, and, and so, your, to your question, uh, it, it, sometimes it's a lot easier to explain these things if they were, if you can imagine them created as they are, versus having to explain the long, slow, gradual evolutionary process through which they may have passed. Right. But we don't have any observational evidence of actually watching, because they're too far away and it takes too much time, to actually watch two galaxies pass through each other. It's never been observed, right, to be clear. It's it's not observed. Now, even if they can simulate it on a computer, a computer simulation is not evidence that something actually happened. Right. It's a theoretical model. Right. There's two different kinds of science in astronomy. There's theoretical. So we could look at something like this and say, that looks a whole lot like two galaxies that collided because on our computer simulation it does something just like that. Right. Just but that does, still doesn't mean that we know that because we didn't see them separated. Right, right. What we're talking about here is the difference between theoretical cosmology yeah. and observational <laughs> astronomy. Right. And so we are making deductions. Uh, we are being deductive about what do we think happened. Look at this. Let's program, what, let's program our physics into the computer and see what it yields, and if it comes up with this, then maybe our model is right. Uh, but, but we're pre-programming the computer with our assumptions right. with, the, with an outcome already known. So there's nothing wrong with being theoretical, but it, it must be said that we should maintain a distinction between what is theoretical and what is observational. That's right. I think that's very, very important. And um, something I want to add is uh, when, when you talk about galaxies, they, one idea that they do have about the formation of galaxies, Dan is that they rely on galaxy collisions a lot. So they think that in the early universe, after, shortly after the Big Bang, there would have been, okay, stars form first. There's been a debate of which comes first, the stars or the galaxies that the stars are a part of. And there's been a lot of debate about this. Is it a, from the bottom up or from the top down? Yeah. So the the... the 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 accepted ideas now is more the bottom up. You have to have stars first, and then the stars start to cluster together, and the clusters get bigger, and then the clusters come together, and then you have small clu- small galaxies, 
and then the small galaxies collide together and merge to become bigger galaxies. And so their idea was, as they look out to the farthest distances, say three or four billion light years from, from, uh, from Earth, they would have found small galaxies, not big galaxies. Yes. And uh, they would not find the, the kind of galaxies that they consider mature. So they, they judge the age of galaxies by the kind of stars that are in them. And so one galaxy may have a lot of blue and white stars that have real, a lot of energy. And another galaxy may have more reddish, yellowish stars. And uh, they, they sort of work out this. It's kind of a statistical argument about if the stars are like this predominantly, then it's a certain age. But when they went back and they looked at the oldest, uh, the, the farthest away galaxies that we know of, as far as Hubble could look and other, and other satellites, they found the what they call mature galaxies as far back as we can detect. They did not find that the, the older, more distant galaxies are small. And, and immature galaxies. So the problem with this is that how do they have the time to form? So they, they've estimated it takes like three to six billion years for a large galaxy to form. But they have found galaxies that would be 500 million or a billion years after the Big Bang. And there's not enough time for them to form. Huh. So the, the, the inherent problem is the deepest pictures of our universe taken by Hubble show galaxies in very mature form. And I think you said, we, we, talked, we did an episode a while ago about how stars form. And there's an assumption about stellar formation right. where you have the hot, white, white-blue stars that are believed to be young only because of our theories about how stars consume fuel. Right. So that your blue and white stars would be high, would be your SUVs. They don't get good gas mileage and they don't last very long. That's right. Yeah, so, so if, if, a, if a galaxy, say, is filled with blue stars, um, then it must be a young galaxy. But the enigma that we run into is that when you look at a galaxy, any particular galaxy like our own, there are blue stars scattered all over the place. They're, they're everywhere. They're in galaxies together with giant red stars, which are supposed to be the old retired stars about to retire, big, fat, bloated, almost out of gas. Um, but but and, and, and so it's hard to explain in current astronomical theory how you can get uh, galaxies of blue and red stars. How can these coexist? Because so, so the, the theory comes about star formation because we have to have a mechanism that creates young stars because these stars couldn't possibly be around for as long as they have been. And then you get back into the observational aspects of the deepest pictures of the universe and you find mature galaxies. And even what has made the news recently, there's been a couple of stars that are, one of them is called the Methuselah star. It's been known for a while, but it's believed to be older than the universe itself. Uh, and so it, it, it caused, I mean, it's been known for a couple of years. It's not, it's not super controversial in the astronomical field, but, but the idea is how can we have a, a star that seems to be older than the universe itself? How come we have galaxies 
in the very early parts of the universe that seem to defy current explanations and models of how galaxies form. Right. So um, it's, it's all fascinating to me. It I really have some is. quotes about this very problem all I'd right. like to read here, Dan. Now, this first one comes from 1988 from a very well-known physicist by the name of James Treffel. He uh, says, It has always been difficult for astronomers to explain why stars are clumped into galaxies instead of being spread out unif- more uniformly in space. There shouldn't be galaxies out there at all. And even if there are galaxies, they shouldn't be grouped together the way they are. The problem of explaining the existence of galaxies has proved to be one of the thorniest in cosmology. By all rights, they just shouldn't be there. Yet there they sit. It's hard to convey the depth of frustration that this simple fact induces among scientists. <laughs> wow. wow. And, and, Dan, you know, we, we did a podcast called Things Too Big for the Big Bang. Right. We talked a lot about galaxy clusters and how yeah. big they are. There's another thing that we do we didn't talk about at the beginning of the broadcast. Uh, go back and listen to our episode called Two Things Big Too Big for the Big Bang and, and the things that are generally too big for the Big Bang are that not only do stars gather together in galaxies, but galaxies gather together in clusters. That's right. And so there are clusters of galaxies. There, there are, are clusters of quasars. They're amazing and enormous yes. and huge beyond our comprehension. So this is really a it's so fascinating because you know, when you read about them, Wayne, you think, oh, science has figured them all out. We know what they are. They're swirling gas. They came together. Here's what happened, blah, blah, blah. But, but when you really leave room for the appreciation of just how much we don't know. Oh, yeah. Just the mystery of what is that? Why is it doing that? Yeah. Uh, I just read an article or read part of an article um, a couple days ago. Uh, I think it was on Twitter. Somebody shared it with me on Twitter. The idea of these things called fast radio bursts. Nobody knows what those are. What, what, what are these things? <laughs> you know, and I mean, so there may be some people that know what they are, but but they're a giant mystery. You know, yeah. Um, and so, and really, so is the formation of galaxies in the yeah. early universe because you right. need you need pockets of density to collect these stars, and it has to it must be a certain type of density because otherwise the stars just crash into each other like cue balls. What, what keeps them separate? What, what keeps the spiral shape going? There's so many fascinating questions right. uh, that, 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 that galaxies elicit. And for every answer that we have, there's a thousand that we don't have. Let me give another quick quote here. This is several scientists, but this is from uh, the journal Nature from 2004. And uh, so it says, nearly a century after the true nature of galaxies was established, their origin and evolution remain great unsolved problems of modern astrophysics. Uh, wow. And uh, uh, kind of related to this, we were talking about dark matter. It's really interesting, Dan, to do a search on Google for uh, dark matter doesn't exist. <laughs> search for that on Google and see what you find. You'll find lots of fascinating things. All right. Well, let's, let me uh, – this gets back into the – I want to talk a little bit about the event that birthed our modern understanding of galaxies. Okay. So I'm going to have just a real quick history here um, with our nearest galaxy neighbor, Andromeda. Right. Okay, so mythically, let's talk about Andromeda for just a half second. In, in Greek mythology, Andromeda was the daughter of Cassiopeia. Cassiopeia is represented as a constellation that goes around the North Pole. It's a, it's a circumpolar constellation. It looks like yeah. a W. Like a W in the um, sky. And, and the myth goes that, that that's mom. That's, mm-hmm. that's mom, queen mom. And uh, she's chained to her chair because she said something insulting to the Nereids, which are these sea goddesses. 
Uh, she said, uh, Cassiopeia said that her daughter, Andromeda, was more beautiful than the Nereids. Whoops! Well, that didn't make Poseidon too happy. I think it was Poseidon. It might have been Zeus. Uh, and so for punishment for Cassiopeia's uh, overweening pride about her, about her daughter, she had to strip, Ca- strip Andromeda down and chain her to a rock on an island so that she could be eaten by Cetus, the sea monster, which is in the south. Uh-huh. And, but, but did that happen? No, because to the rescue comes Perseus on his horse Pegasus and rescues Andromeda. <laughs> so, so the constellations, there's a soap opera going on in the constellations of Greek mythology. But, um, but, 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 our, but our nearest galaxy is two and a half million light years away, as I said. And, uh, but, but it's the only galaxy, I think it's the only galaxy, that we can see in a dark sky with the naked eye. So for a long time... Andromeda has been known, but not as we know it. The first reference of it appears at, at, about in an Arabic astronomer's book about the 10th century. Mm-hmm. Um, it's not actually... And then Charles Messier, the famous comet hunter who made a list of 110 things to avoid, the things that Charles said to avoid actually turned out to be some of the most beautiful things in the world because Charles was looking for comets. And so these things, this list that he made, were not comets. They were fuzzy objects in his telescope. And so he made a list. He's like, do not, do not look at this one. Do not look at this one. These are not comets, right? And so he came up with a list of things that were not comets. And uh, things, the nuisances, that when he was looking for comets, he, he just wanted to get rid of them. But they turn out to be galaxies and star clusters and these most beautiful things because Charles just really didn't have a good telescope. Mm-hmm. Um, but anyway, he, he, he classified Andromeda as the 31st object on his list of things to avoid, right? It was a nebula. It was a cloud. And so it became object M31, M for Messier. 31. It was the 31st thing on his list. He put it on the list in 1764. Okay, there we go. Um, Andromeda wasn't actually photographed until 1887. And it wasn't until 1923 that we even understood what we were looking at. So in, in 1920, there was a debate between astronomer Harlow Shapley and Herbert Curtis. Now, this was in 1920. It was a public debate. Now, the debate was, are the spiral nebulae... I mean, they, we, we knew that there were these clouds in our galaxy. We called them spiral nebulae, as you said earlier. The debate was, are these clouds within our own galaxy, or are they galaxies unto themselves? Right. So Shapley's position was, they are clouds within our own galaxy. Our own galaxy is just a lot bigger than we think it is. Yeah. That was Shapley's argument. The other fellow, um, Herbert, the other fellow, Curtis, believed that they were galaxies in their own right. Mm -hmm. And then in 1923, three years later, Edwin Hubble settled the debate. And he was looking through the 100-inch Mount Wilson telescope yeah. And he observed two things in Andromeda. Oh, well, more than two things, but two different types of things. He observed supernovae, stars mm-hmm. exploding. Right. And he, ab- he observed Cepheid variables. Oh, yes. Which are like lighthouses. So he observed these two things. These two things enabled him to judge the distance to Andromeda, which he misjudged. But they did prove once and for all that Andromeda was not a cloud in our universe. It was not a cloud in our galaxy, but a, a galaxy unto itself. So Shapley lost that debate. Hubble actually sent Shapley a letter 
1923. Right. And, and explain to him, hey, Shapley fellow, good fellow, guess what I found? I found Cepheid in Andromeda. I found yeah. a Cepheid and I found some supernova in Andromeda. How about that? And Shapley is said to have replied, here is the letter that ruined my universe. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I've read but, this. But that's the, 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 the October of 1923 was the pivotal turning point, as uh, science writer Marcia Bartusiak has said in a book titled this way, the day we discovered the universe. Mm. That's the day, almost overnight, our universe became exponentially enormous. Much, much bigger than we had imagined. Right. And so, so, the, so the science was on while the universe is huge. Yeah. And, and from that point forward, uh, Hubble began to make more observations of other galaxies. And that's where we, he came up with the shapes of the ellipticals uh, and the, the, uh, the barred spirals and the spirals and all those things. Uh, through his careful observations, he came up with those categories. But then, of course, there was that, pain, that, that, that annoying category of irregulars. Where do I do with this one? Right. right. So that's just a rundown of how – and that was 1923, so it hasn't even been 100 years that we've known – uh, galaxies to be what they are today, right? So, Dan, I, I think we need to come back to remembering what this kind of tells us about God, because um, you know, is it more under more important for us to understand the science about galaxies, or is it more important for us to just enjoy the beauty of them? I think I, I, I honestly think that's an excellent question, and I think obviously it's it's absolutely both because both the science and the beauty point to Jesus. I think I agree, and so we need to balance those somehow and uh, understand that we don't have all the answers. Uh, you know, a um, an artist who's painting on a small canvas, he can flick his wrist and put an arc across the canvas of color, but God does that over. A million light years all at once, uh, in, in when he created. Yeah, it says you know, in the. I, I think it, David captures it before David knew, before anybody knew about galaxies. David's sitting there looking at this, the moon and the stars, and he says in Psalm eight, he says, "When I look at the moon and the stars, the works of thy fingers. Right. What is man that thou art mindful of him, and the son of man that you care for him?" And, and exactly, you're right. The, 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 the beauty in the heavens gives us pause to contemplate the artistry of the universe. Part of that is, of course, scientific. That's part of the artwork. But it's almost like, as you say, Wayne, if we get too scientific, it's almost like, like, like studying the periodic table composition of elements in a Picasso right. rather than appreciating the Picasso for, for what it is. Sure, certainly, the, the paint has certain chemical properties, but, but that's not what the paint is finally all about because that's a very reductionistic way of looking at painting you certainly could do that right but but when you go to an art museum you're not really too concerned about uh you know how much carbon is in the red right um, but but yeah we need we need both i'm gonna start all over again so it's like looking at a picasso and being more concerned about the periodic elements and, and molecules and atoms and material present in the paint than it is looking at the overall canvas. Um, and, and there's certainly that's a part of it, but but it's not the, the the chemical composition of the paint is not what the painting is all about. Right. It's uh, and the the universe is not just kind of a a big empty harsh place. Where it's kind of a, the idea of an unfriendly universe, and we're an insignificant speck in this. 
that's the wrong concept. The, the biblical concept, Dan, is in Psalm 103, verse 11, one of my favorite verses. And when I sign the copy of our book, I like to put this verse reference in there. Uh-huh. Psalm 103:11 says, um, As high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his love toward them who fear him. Oh wow! Yeah, that's that is an awesome verse. I think it reminds me of uh, it reminds me of Jeremiah too in Jeremiah thirty one, where God is explaining his new covenant to Israel, and it, he's speaking of Jesus, of course, uh, future looking toward toward Christ, the prophetic utterance of of, of the Messiah, that the new covenant that he's going to make with Israel, he likens to the fixed order of the heavens. Yeah. And then in uh, the book of Job, uh, the first time that God speaks. He asked Job several questions. Among them, do you know the ordinances of the heavens? <laughs> do you know the ordinances yeah. of the heavens? And where were you when the sons of God shouted for joy and all the morning stars sang together? What does it sound like when morning stars <laughs> sing? Whatever is that? Right. You know, and so, and of course, Psalm 19, one of our favorites, you know, the heavens declare the kabod, the glory of God. And then... In Matthew 5, I think this is, this is phenomenal as, as well, where Jesus is, is the Sermon on the Mount, of course, where he says, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of the heavens. And Matthew uses a plural, tonoranon or toisoranois. Matthew is using a plural to describe the heavens. The English sometimes translates it singular, but Matthew is directly relating it to shamayim, which is the Old Testament Hebrew word for the heavens. When you see heavens in the Old Testament, it is shemayim. It is always plural. Mm-hmm. And so Matthew's extraordinary. The, the, the gospel is extraordinary in that the Old Testament shemayim, the kingdom of the heavens, came down and is here and is speaking with you. Right. The one who said, let there be light, is telling you that if you are poor in spirit, if you are brokenhearted, blessed are you, for yours is the kingdom of the heavens. And so these glorious galaxies remind us of God's riches. And I'm not just talking about physical or fiscal peace or prosperity. We're talking about an inheritance that we can't even wrap our brains around. Right. You know, the, the wisdom of God is, as you said in the proverb, is, is to hide a thing. And so, you know, we delight in digging it out and finding the treasure and enduring through the process of discovery and learning and contemplating. You know, astronomy began as a contemplative discipline in appreciating the beauty of and the majesty of the night sky. Yes. It, it's not, if, if it was just like dryer lint, <laughs> we wouldn't make a whole discipline of studying dryer lint. Uh, it's because they're so beautiful. It's, it's like a cathedral. And, and so naturally it draws our attention and says, contemplate me. We, we need to contemplate. Science is one way to do that, but it's not the only way to do it. Absolutely not the only way to do it. We need that beauty. We need that appreciation of that kind of thing. Yeah, I'm, I'm not sure that the thinking of God as an artist doesn't give us more insight sometimes than science. Uh, yeah. Knowing the facts is, uh, is a good thing, but we have trouble knowing how to interpret a lot of the facts we have for, uh, in uh, things in astronomy. I want to quote a... Uh, a section of a poem written during Kepler's time. It was a gentleman who would have been a contemporary of Johannes Kepler. Mm-hmm. His name was Sir John Davies. Okay. And this is only a small uh, stanza of a much larger poem, um, and, it, and it's talking about creation. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, the poem goes, part of the poem goes, 
quote, how was this goodly architecture wrought? Mm. Or by what means were they together brought? They err that say they did occur by chance. Love made them meet in a well-ordered Oh, that's wonderful. You know, and, and, you know, we talk about forces in science bringing things together. But biblically, you know, the ancients were right. Dante, Sir John Davies here, what is it that moves the sun and other stars? It's not forces. Forces are just a way of describing them. It's love. It's God's creative act was an act of love. Because he knew when he created everything, what was going to happen? God so loved the cosmos, God so loved the world, that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever so should believe in him, should not perish but have everlasting life. Yeah, so you're, uh, this has been, you, people from a science background might be kind of taken aback by what you just said, but what you, 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 you got to understand, understand that what we use in our mathematics about gravity and our calculations, that's what philosophers have called the proximal cause. Yes. Not the ultimate cause. Absolutely. And every force that we put in our equations requires an origin. That's right. The laws require an origin. That's right. And that requires a creator. That's right. Yeah, the laws, uh, as the I like to say. The creator is the ultimate cause. Right, because numbers, laws, don't cause anything. They don't, yes. They're not causal agents. Right. They are products of a causal agent. They're, they're descriptive. So yeah. that we can predict and, and know something about what, what's around us. Right. Well, Wayne, it has been a delightful spin. We, we barely even scratched the story. We may have to do part two of Galaxies. I think that might be. There's lots to talk about on more, Galaxies. We, yeah. I, think, I think we're going to officially call this part one of Galaxies, and maybe next month we'll do a part two and take up some more peculiar galaxies. Okay. And, uh, we've because got a whole galaxy of things to we explore. Have a, we do. We just, we've only touched one sort of solar system, and we need to branch out. So, so we'll go ahead and, uh, and call this part one, and then uh, next month we will do uh, some more. Because we both have a ton of research that we could uh, bring to the table here, literally. Uh, so we will uh, go enjoy the day. Uh, thank you again to Buongiorno for hosting us. And, Wayne, it has been awesome. Thank you again, and we'll see you next time on... Oh, on one other thing, Dan, before we... Oh, okay. I'd like to stop. <laughs> Sorry about this. But Way to ruin the ending, Wayne. I'm, I'm going to put an article <laughs> on my website uh, that, that relates to this topic. So look, look for uh, creationanswers.net slash answers blog and you'll find something more about galaxies and you can look up some pictures and so on and we will leave a link in the description below this podcast so that you can easily click on what wayne just said and uh, go from there and explore uh, the wonderful world of galaxies and we will see you next month here on good heavens good heavens